My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is an iHeart Original. Retired Marine Corps Major General Smedley Butler here. Smedles to some, but you gotta earn it. People ask me all the time if I imagined what leading a coup on the White House would feel like. Like, did I imagine myself on that horse at the front of the line? You bet your fucking ass I did. Because I never savored a sweeter buzz than Conquest. I'd change my middle name to Conquest if it wasn't already Darlington. Darlington's such a sweet name, why mess with it? Anyway, the coup. I can imagine myself there now. The night before the march south to Washington, we camp in the Pine Barrens around Elkridge, Maryland. It's colder than a witch's Why'd you bleep that? I said nose. Ugh, these iHeart people. Anyway, orders are to disembark at 0430, which, for those of you not in the know, is military speak for too damn early. Our route is straight down US-1, 30 miles to the White House. The boys form a single column, 12 men wide. 500,000 proud American veterans in black shirts and armbands. Every man with a brand new Remington rifle. We reach 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue by sundown. The boys surround the White House and I walk right in. I enter President Roosevelt's study without knocking. Hand casually on my side arm holster like, yeah, that's my gun. Jealous. I have 500,000 men outside who want peace but want something more, I tell him. What's that? He asks with that goofball mid-Atlantic voice thing he's got. I want to be Secretary of State, I say. Third in the line of succession. But that's not all. At this point, I lean in. Which makes him lean back. So then I lean in further, Sheryl Sandberg style, and I say real quietly, Now listen here, Rosie. Henceforth, I'm gonna act as the nation's executive. You can continue to live here and draw your salary and pick out the China, but that's it, kid. And what do you think? Took the coward less than a minute to sign the commission. 
And just like that, the Tree of Liberty hath been refreshed. I ended the depression, restored the economy to its free market glory, outlawed war, and became the first fascist dictator of the United States. All hail President Major General for life, Smedley, Darlington, Conquest, Wait, 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 Smedley. How dare you interrupt the leader of the air quotes free world. None of that ever happened though. There was no armed coup. Mm, but there could have been. That was their plan anyway, those jerks in the smoke-filled room. They tried to make an offer that was like so hard to refuse. From iHeart Originals and School of Humans, this is Let's Start a Coup. I'm Ben Bolin. And I'm Alex French. Depending on whom you ask, the story we're about to tell you may or may not be true. We've done all the research, read the books, interviewed historians, but there are some big gaps in the historical record, and we'll never know exactly what happened. So in those gaps, we've also had some fun. Uh, That cold open fantasy thing was fun. The rest is going to be straight downhill. Episode 3, Let's Get Illuminati. Oh, that's cool. Get it? Smettles? Get it? Get, pun. Get it? Oh, Illuminati, like Illuminati. <laughs> I get it. That's stupid. The year is 1933, and American President Franklin Delano Roosevelt is on a mission to end the Great Depression and reshape America. Along the way, Roosevelt and his brain trust create employment and social programs that alleviate the sting of poverty for millions of Americans. He regulates dozens of industries and directs new oversight to Wall Street there's serious talk about a social safety net being created, unemployment insurance and prohibitions on child labor. And he broke from the gold standard, the basis for American monetary policy since 1879, and forced Americans to turn in their gold. Roosevelt's New Deal meant that the old, anything-goes order of doing business was over. And in his inauguration speech, FDR blamed America's business elite for forcing his hand. Primarily... This is because the rulers of the exchange of mankind's good have failed through their own stubbornness and their own incompetence, have admitted their failure and have abdicated. So this is the presidential version of trash talking. And all of this change made some very rich and powerful people very angry. As we've mentioned, they all hang out in the smoky room, the place where titans of industry gather to concoct the world order. That's right, we're here and we're drunk. On power and cognac alike. Oh, there's a couple of them now. Hey guys. Don't look me in the eye when you speak, please, thank you. Today, Alex and I thought we'd pause the story of Smedley Butler to see if we can get inside the room where the coup was planned. You see, it takes time and resources and discretion to put something like that together. Maybe it starts as a kind of cocktail coup. A wild, vaguely seditious idea that gets tossed around at a party, but it sticks. It escalates. And all of a sudden, it's no longer a joke. People start taking it seriously. Once we can see inside for ourselves... Maybe we can finally see who exactly these anonymous plotters and puppet masters are. And we could figure out who's really pulling the strings of this coup plot. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You want to come in? Not on your tintype. Even if we let you in, it's not like you could really understand what it's like to belong here. What wouldn't we understand? Well, what it's like to be omnipotently wealthy, for one. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what podcasts are paying these 
these days, but I'm guessing I just spent more on breakfast. Well, that's a dick thing to say. Oh, was it? I'd apologize, but my money won't let me. <laughs> okay. okay, okay, but I've just got to know, what do you guys actually do here all day? Gossip and make more money, mostly. I mean, it's a lot of fun. We sit around, read the paper, see what Blondie and Dagwood are up to, talk about so-and-so and this and that. And plan coups. Well, yeah, of course. There's some pressing of palms. Some greasing of wheels. Some making of deals. I mean, we're only human and incredibly oblivious to our own privilege. You get the vague but shady picture? Yep, sounds vague and shady, all right. Also, the drinks? Amazing. Try and find a dryer Gibson, I dare you. So, the smoke-filled room, Hang on, hang on. You keep talking about the smoke-filled room. It's not just one place. There are multiple locations, and there are all kinds of conspiracies. We're thinking of someday opening one in Tulum, dedicated to figuring out once and for all if Leah Michelle can read. Truly, that's a conspiracy theory for the ages. So, in the parlance of my darlings on the Riviera, the party moves. Look at that. A Gatsby reference in episode one and now Hemingway. Aren't we smart? Yeah. Now, you see, our little gang of insurgent plotters met on a weekly basis in a smoky room at either the Metropolitan Club or the Empire State Club, both fancy pants Manhattan establishments. How do you get invited in? How do you get invited in? (laughs) Don't wear that, for starters. What? It's a baseball cap. It sure is. Stop it, Beauregard. So rude. This is Benjamin Bolin you're speaking to. He's a very prominent member of the creative underclass. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm a big deal. So come on, show me around. No! You'll touch stuff! We won't, I promise. Oh God, both of you want to come? Clear the decks. Please? All right, all right, all right. Since you said it's so cute together... But after we give you a tour, introduce you to some of the more notorious denizens... We will erase your memory so you can never speak of this again! Right on. Can we bring our recording equipment and stuff? We're not recording, we promise. Yeah. Everything's turned off. Okay, as long as they're off. Welcome to Jura... Um, I mean, welcome to the smoke-filled room. Okay, listeners, let me describe what we're seeing here. Hang on, you just said you weren't going to record! Oh, no, I just like to narrate my life, because I feel insecure, because I don't have as much money as you guys. Well, that tracks. All right, proceed. The room smells of leather and booze and wood polish and cigar smoke. The walls are shimmering gold and the furniture is French walnut. There are crown moldings everywhere. Seems like everybody in this room, and it's all white guys to be clear, speaks in hushed tones because nobody wants to be overheard. The men wear gray flannel three-piece suits with chalky white pinstripes and gleaming ivory buttons. I dress it up with a cravat and a boutonniere just to be fun. The smoke is so thick you can hardly see anybody's face. Although, that guy looks familiar. Yes, I believe you know Jerry Maguire. He kept stalking Smedley in episode two. Plate in his head, face like a thumb, generally happy to see you. Hello? Right, that guy. He told Smedley he had some real financial heavyweights behind him. Guilty. I have very delicate bones, so I do appreciate you calling me a heavyweight. Wait, wait, wait. So it's you two behind this? Well, let's just say guys like us. And like Robert Sterling Clark over there, the guy whose papa left him millions in singer sewing machine money. Remember him? 
Mr. I'll give up half my fortune to save the other half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eventually he winds up becoming a philanthropist and forming an art institute with his wife, doing all sorts of preservation. What a waste. What a simp. Don't talk about me like I'm not here. What you got there, Mr. Clark? A couple of Monets and a skinny girl margarita. Wow. Yes, it's the rich person's version of double fisting it. Cool, so it's it's just these two guys here? Oh dear me, no. There's lots of cool planners milling about, but they're in the South Wing. Now where's that lever? Holy smokes, a secret passageway behind the toilet? The rich really know how to live then. Yes, here we are. Okay, so that handsome fellow with the slicked back hair is Grayson Murphy. Mr. Grayson Mallet Prevost Murphy, if you're nasty. Don't let the effortless coiffure fool you. He's not a stylist, he's a titan of business. And also a proficient mischief maker, which is rather helpful for cool planning. I mean, you gotta have fun with it. Grayson went to the same fancy private school as the DuPont brothers. Pierre, René, and Lemon, scions of the famous munitions and chemical company. So safe to say we'll hear more about them later. <laughs> That's a safe bet. Right after his graduation from West Point, Murphy joined military intelligence and was dispatched by Teddy Roosevelt for a months-long spy mission to South America. Grayson tells me that part of their coastal reconnaissance involved chartering a yacht and posing as rich tourists. Cigars and champagne for everybody, but they were spying. Isn't that hysterical? Mm, no. Okay. Grayson Murphy spied for the United States and the Philippines, too, and he spent time in the Dominican Republic, which the United States also invaded. You know, there's an interesting amount of crossover with Smedley Butler here. I mean, how they were both warriors of dollar diplomacy. You really are very intelligent, the way you connect these dots. You ever thought of writing some of this stuff down? Oh, shucks. Thanks, man. Well, I actually did write a book. It's called Stuff They Don't Want Oh, I'm going to stop you. I can't read. In fact, confidentially, it was me who taught Leah Michelle how to not be able to read. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, that's one conspiracy theory solved, I guess. To wrap this chapter up, Grayson works in operational planning during World War One. befriends the guy who went on to lead the Office of Strategic Services. Oh, that's the uh, forerunner to the CIA, right? And Alex, I'm pretty sure the guy who headed that up was named Wild Bill Donovan. Oh, cool. Well, now you're just showing off. Sis boom the war ends. Grayson goes on to hold board seats on a half dozen or so major companies. Anaconda Copper Mining, Bethlehem Steel, New York Trust, and and then rumor has it he went on to provide the voice of Yogi Bear. Really? Nope. Moving along. Now, in the safari room... Hang on. Is that a live tiger? Oh, yeah. This is getting creepy. Oh, honey, we're just getting started. Now, here, over here, we have three distinguished blokes. Hugh Johnson. How about that name? <laughs> you get it? Yeah, yeah. Hugh Johnson. I get it. He's also frenemies with Rexford Tugwell. As well as my friend Nancy Hawk's brother, Mike. Get it? Mike Hawk. Mike Hawk. Yeah, we get it. Yeah. I've read about Hugh Johnson. Huge. Oh, I get it. Real mature guys. He's a vital early member of FDR's brain trust, right? His nickname is Iron Pants. Johnson headed up the National Recovery Administration, the NRA. Just to be clear, 
Not the National Rifle Association. No, good save. The National Recovery Administration. Look at you two knowing even more things. It's fascinating. Oh, look out the window. Orphans. Yay! Get the rocks! We'll be right back. Those guys are the worst. Alex, if I remember right, General Hugh Johnson didn't last long in the FDR administration. That's right. Hugh Johnson kind of had a thing for fascist economics. We'll get to that in a moment. But his NRA did do some good things. Yeah, yeah. The NRA's stated purpose was the elimination of cutthroat competition. They did this by bringing industry, labor, and government all together to create what they called codes of fair practice. You know, the stuff we take for granted today, like minimum wage or making child labor illegal. These regulations had the added impact of creating jobs and boosting the economy. For instance, enforcing a 40-hour work week meant that businesses needed to spread the available work among a larger portion of the workforce, and this drove down unemployment numbers. Johnson treated the NRA as his own personal fiefdom. He had almost unlimited power. And with his charisma and can-do attitude, he did an incredible job selling the NRA to the American public. This is from a 1933 infomercial about the NRA, starring Jimmy Durante. You and you and you and you, you've got a president now. He gave the land a new deal. You hold the cards, now you deal. The NRA was so popular that in 1933, Time magazine named old Iron Pants Johnson Man of the Year. By time zone admission, the pickings were slim. FDR won in 1932, so they couldn't give it to him two years in a row. Time also noted that Johnson's competition included Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, and as we all know, those guys were dicks. But no dicks could compare to the mighty, huge Johnson. (laughs) I'm sorry, I almost got that out with a straight face. Anyway, Hugh Johnson and the NRA were celebrated, but then Johnson melted down. He drank heavily, and he started disappearing on benders for days at a time. He compared himself to Moses and his NRA code to the Ten Commandments. Let's just say he had delusions of grandeur. And he started being a little too public about where he got his ideas. At the time, an economic system called corporatism was so hot in fascist Italy. Here's how it worked. Mussolini's government created 22 corporations. Each corporation represented a different trade. Just about every sector of the Italian economy was represented. Everything from the production of fruits and veggies, to forestry and lumber, to chemical trades and electricity and water and- Good Lord, we got it. Yeah, you're losing people, nerd. Yeah, nerd, nerd. nerd. (laughs) Mussolini, of course, presided over each corporation. Below him was a council of bigwigs from the fascist party, employers, and laborers for each trade. Johnson's NRA was set up to look a lot like Mussolini's corporatist system. Just like the Italians had their corporations, the NRA formalized trade organizations with government officials, business owners, and workers. And it doesn't sound too bad. Employees and employers were working together to create codes of fair practice. But the truth was Johnson had set up something that was more like corporatism light. Instead of benefiting the state, like Mussolini's corporatism, this structure really favored big business. U.S. workers won the right to collectively bargain, sure, but the pay remained pretty bad and the hours were still long. So what we're saying is, Johnson was essentially trying corporate fascism on for size, and with gusto. He actually starts sending pamphlets on Mussolini's corporatism to the cabinet. 
Except, those pamphlets were straight up fascist propaganda. All this shilling for fascist economics got Johnson some negative attention. In fact, it may have led to him getting sacked from the NRA. At which point he joins our little club and becomes one of the planners of our rebellion. (laughs) Quite the character arc Hugh Johnson had. No kidding. Let's take a break. And when we get back, we're going to meet more notorious denizens of the smoke-filled room. Good. I could use a refill anyway. And speaking of refills... That's the sound of gin being poured haphazardly into the tumbler of someone who, by the sound of it, has a drinking problem. And it's the well-defined problem. It's the only kind of gin we use. Old Gimlet Eye Gin, the gin of champions. But not champions who've, like, done stuff. Champions who were born into it. Yes, old Gimlet Eye Gin. Remember, it's the... it's... What is the tagline? All right, it's got the eye. And now, here's the real lads. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. With refills for all. I think I'm good. Guys, this old gimlet eye gin kind of tastes like gasoline. Let me see that. Oh, that is actually gasoline. <laughs> God. Sorry. It's so smoky in here, you can hardly read the labels. Yeah, dear boy, rinse your mouth out with some absinthe. Oh, yikes, this is hemlock. I'm good. Okay, I am good. Let's continue the tour. All right, well, over here, playing tag in the cloakroom, are two of our finest, almost but not quite, presidents. They tried, bless them. There's Al Smith, four-term progressive governor of New York, lost the 28th presidential election to Herbert Hoover. Did someone say my name? Yes, hello, Herbie. Um, please don't call me Herbie. If you must use a nickname, stick to my favorite, the Great Engineer. 
Or my second favorite, Hubie La Huve. In 1932, Al Smith tried to block Roosevelt from getting the Democratic nomination for president. Smith made no secret that he loathed Roosevelt and opposed the New Deal. Join the club. Literally. And here's Al Smith's partner in failure, John S. Davis. Oh, that's the guy who wrote the gold standard address that Butler was supposed to read to the men at the American Legion Convention. I love how excited you get about this stuff. It's really adorable. Thank you. Uh, Davis was nominated by the Dems in 24, but then got beat by Calvin Coolidge by 7 million votes, I believe it was. And there were like 25 people in the U.S. back then, so ha <laughs> Yeah, he served in Congress and as the ambassador to the United Kingdom. He also argued 140 cases before the Supreme Court, so, you know, busy guy in politics. And busy guy socially, too, because he's buddies with the richest dudes in the whole country at the time. People like the Rockefellers and Morgans and DuPonts, right? Why do you ask if you know the answer? Touche. I, I just want to make it clear. His friends are so powerful that they're above politics. It's like they see presidents as employees. It's true, Ben. These guys were connected. I'm thinking that John W. Davis and Al Smith being here in the smoke-filled room seems like a major clue behind the plot to depose FDR. Indeed, Alex, because all these smoky room guys, Davis, Smith, Grayson Murphy, Robert Sterling Clark, not to mention the alleged involvement of a handful of sitting senators, all these folks were connected to an anti-Roosevelt organization called the American Liberty League. I'd never belong to a club that would have someone like me as a member, except this one, because Roosevelt blows. The group went public in August 1934. Uh, the League's stated purpose is to... Hang on, let me pull up my shirt. I tattooed their motto across my chest. Wow, Lucius, you're ripped. Thank you. They put a Pilates machine upstairs next to the Iron Maiden. So, League's stated purpose was to, quote, defend and uphold the Constitution, to teach the necessity of respect for the rights of persons and property as fundamental to every successful form of government, to teach the duty of government to encourage and protect individual and group initiative and enterprise. Hang on, it continues around my back here. To, yeah, to foster the right to work, earn, save, and acquire property, and to preserve the ownership and lawful use of property when acquired. Or, more plainly, the purpose of the Liberty League is to influence the Roosevelt administration. And, if necessary or possible, interfere. Don't say it's so grim. Interfere. It's a happy word. The League got off to an inauspicious start. They launched months prematurely with no money in the bank or membership. And only because a newspaper reporter had the goods on the story about the formation of an anti-Roosevelt group formed by some of the world's wealthiest men. That'll sell some papers. Smedley saw the headlines and remembered his last meeting with Jerry Maguire. Hello when he told him about his adventures learning about fascist groups in Europe. I studied Hitler. I checked out that ominous fascist group Quad de Feu. I took a sort of comedic photo where it looks like I'm holding up the leaning tower. <laughs> all in all, it was an A-plus visit. McGuire told Smedley that in a few weeks' time, there would be an announcement about the formation of a powerful new political organization made up of powerful men that would back the coup. This organization would be created under the auspices of defending the Constitution. 
And it's not just made up of rich shadowy types. We've courted a few rich non-shadowy types too. Yeah, people with fuck you type money and influence. Folks like Hollywood producer Hal Roach, League backers directed U.S. Steel, General Motors, Standard Oil. And the DuPonts, right? Yes, yeah, we're just getting there. The creators of the Liberty League were Irene DuPont and his two brothers, Pierre and Lamont. Now those guys are scary, even if it's a lot of fun to say Lamont DuPont. Lamont DuPont, Lamont DuPont, Lamont DuPont, oh, pretty good, Lamont DuPont. <laughs> Irene and his brothers believed the New Deal constituted dangerous extremism. Most of all, they hated the worker protections being churned out by the National Recovery Administration because, you know, they didn't see workers as people. The DuPonts and their lackeys from the League wanted a lot of things. Lower taxes, elimination of federal relief, perhaps a statue of moi et Pierre Elemont on the National Mall, one that dwarfs the Lincoln Memorial. I don't know, just spitballing. And to get all those things they wanted done, the Liberty League gave money to right-wing groups who opposed communism or government regulation. At the same time, they actually advised the Roosevelt administration on economic matters and advised on New Deal proposals when they benefited the DuPonts. They're basically like interwar Cokes plus the Mercers, except they owned a dynamite factory. Eventually, they moved on to chemicals with other applications. Yeah, but their primary business was always boom and bang. By 1933, the company had assets in excess of $620 million. In today's money, that's more than $14 billion. They were the principal stockholder of General Motors. Face it, DuPont was an industrial powerhouse. At the same time the DuPonts are launching the Liberty League, they're also fending off accusations of war profiteering during a series of well-publicized congressional hearings. The DuPonts were being maligned and framed. The DuPont brothers and their gang of anti-regulation crusaders like to point out all the havoc Prohibition wrought as a prime example of government overreach. Irene is emotional, militant, paranoid, a megalomaniac that outshines us all in his determination. I think I'm, like, in love. Right around the time the Liberty League booted up, Irene's top lieutenant at the League had a meeting with Ku Klux Klan leader Hiram Evans. They discussed a possible anti-New Deal collab. Oh, that Evans guy. He kept coming in here with his pointy hood and robe. So unsavory. The only time he made me laugh was when his hood got caught in the overhead fan. He was like, whoa! I swear, I almost pulled a muscle. It was so funny. So it seems like the DuPonts and their co-conspirators at the Liberty League had the logistical ability to pull off the scheme. And they had the motive. No, no, no. Look here, you. The DuPonts company makes neoprene and stuff like that. They're job creators and neoprene creators. You mustn't make a big deal out of their consolidation of power, nor their backdoor dealings with clumsy KKK members. <laughs> and you really mustn't make a big deal out of the fact that just as Roosevelt's cranking through his first 100 days, the DuPont family purchased the Remington Arms Company. Shh, quiet, Lucius. They what? The Remington Arms Company? Like one of the oldest, biggest firearms companies in the country? Oh, shit. That would mean a rifle for every legionnaire in General Butler's walk to Washington. 
who said Remington Arms? I said Remington Farms. Yeah, it's a fabulous company run by and for chickens. Yeah, sure, dude. So they had the motive, they had the muscle, they just needed the Generalissimo. I bet these are the puppet masters we've been looking for. You're out of line! You are making a serious accusation against a valued member of the smoke-filled room community, and I'm not having it! Yeah, taking over the tour with your vast historical knowledge is one thing, but you can't talk shit about one of our best guys. We're throwing you out. And don't come back unless you want to go up on the trophy wall with the other liberals! Well... Uh, another day of podcast research, uh, another tumble into a darkened alley. What do you say? Let's head back. Sure. You know, the more I learn about all this, the scariest part of the story is the Liberty League and the DuPonts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, these are the sorts of people who can destabilize economies or convince the American government to invade a sovereign nation. Yeah, people who manufacture munitions, people who are accused of war profiteering. Who concoct plans with the Ku Klux Klan. Who believe with conviction that their vision of the world is the best and only vision. Seems like the DuPonts could be the masters of this entire enterprise. Telling you, the hairs on the back of my neck are up again, Alex. Again with the hairs, Ben. I mean, they always know when something wicked is coming. Fair enough. Are they gone? Yes, they seem to be getting on some form of public transportation. Barf. Lucius, I think we know what we need to do. All of us plotters and schemers and titans of industry. Get Smedley Butler to lead the coup? Yes, and a Kurig for the kitchenette. Oh, I love both those ideas. Smedley gives us street cred with those pea-brained veterans. Yes, without them, who knows if we could even pull this off. Oh, we will, Beauregard. We will. Irene, you're here. Where were you hiding? This spittoon. Oh, brilliant. And gross. Gather round, boys. Company's coming. Let's Start a Coup is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts. Our hosts are Alex French and Ben Bolin. The show is written by Alex French with additional writing by Joe Kinosian. Original music and scoring by Joe Kinosian. Character voices by Joe Kinosian. Does he do Windows too? Evelis Perez is our producer. Amelia Brock is our senior producer. Sound design scoring, mixing, and mastering by Alexander Overington. Story editing by Lacey Roberts. Fact checking by Jocelyn Sears. Sean Riggins is our recording engineer. Recorded at Tune Welders in Atlanta, Georgia. Executive producers are Jason English, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley. Special thanks to Ethan Trex. Clips courtesy of the National Archives and Records Administration and the Academy Collections. If you're enjoying the show, help us get the word out by leaving a rating in your favorite podcast app. And if you don't enjoy, (laughs) we come for you. Tune in again next time for Let's Start a Coup. School of Humans. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? 
All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the Mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting Mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.